You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 5. It's a book of the Bible in the New Testament. We're taking the better part of a year, just going verse by verse through the entirety of John's gospel. It's written by... Jesus' nearest and dearest and best friend, and he tells us some things about Jesus that aren't recorded anywhere else in the history of the world, including the story that we find ourselves in in John chapter 5. Today's sermon is actually a continuation and conclusion of what we studied last week, so let me catch you up to speed. There is a guy who has been an invalid, handicapped, crippled, for 38 years. Some of you have chronic pain. Some of you have disability. Some of you have had injury that you've been unable to heal from. Some of you have struggled mightily with chronic pain and suffering. That would be this man's condition for a full 38 years of his life. His life has been very painful, and this suffering is the center of his life, and it has affected every aspect of his being. And he is at the temple, the place where God's presence was and God's people came and Jesus arrived at the temple, walked up to this man, looked him in the eye and asked him a curious question. Do you want to be healed? The guy didn't really answer the question, kind of an odd exchange. Nonetheless, Jesus told him, take up your mat and walk. And in an instant, Jesus healed him and commanded him to pick up his mat and to walk away. And so doing that, as he is passing through the temple, it happens to be on their Sabbath, which is Saturday. God forbid the work on Saturday, and they created additional rules. The religious leaders did. So God said, no work on Saturday. And the religious leaders said, well, good start, God. We've got a few actual additional rules that we'll add to your rules. We're here to help you. Thank you very much. One of their rules was you can't heal anybody on the Sabbath. Another one of their rules was you can't carry anything on the Sabbath. So when they say this healed guy carrying his mat, rather than getting excited, they become critical. They approach him and they ask him, why are you carrying your mat and how did you get healed? And he realizes he's about to get in trouble. Okay, how many of you, when you were a kid, your mom would come with a wooden spoon, you're like, I know where this is going. I gotta find a way to point to my sibling. I gotta shift the blame as quickly as I can. So he sees the wooden spoon coming from the religious leaders and he says, whoa, I'm a victim. Jesus healed me and told me to carry my mat. You should go find him and deal with him. And so then they get their wooden spoon and they go looking for Jesus. And, and, and it's just amazing. Sometimes you can get in trouble for doing the wrong thing. Sometimes you get in trouble for doing the right thing. And it says that this was how they and when they and where they began persecuting Jesus. Mind-blowing. Jesus healed a guy, so they're going to punish him. This is a weird gift exchange. Jesus comes, hey, I have something for you. What do you have? Healing. Awesome. Amazing. Jesus, I brought something for you as well. What? Persecution. What a weird gift exchange this is. Amen? Jesus gets persecuted for loving and healing and serving someone because he doesn't do it according to the manual of the religious leaders. And what they have is the heart and disposition of a critic, of a critic. The difference between a coach and a critic is this. A coach tries to build you up. A critic just tries to beat you up. That's the difference between a critic and a coach. A critic and a coach will both bring to you their concerns, but a coach is trying to build you up, and a critic is trying to beat you up. Some of you are critics. Some of you had a critical disposition and attitude. Some of you are people who are always finding fault with others. You're obsessed over details. If they don't do it your way, they're not doing it God's way because, of course, God prefers your way. That's exactly what is going on here. Jesus comes and you know that it is their fault, not his, their problem, not his, because they are criticizing him. They are seeking to critique God for not being godly enough for them. And and here's why I want you to see this. You can love God, be serious, be devout, but if you have the heart of a critic, you're opposing Jesus, you're not aiding Jesus. That's exactly where they find themselves. And nonetheless, Jesus is trying to have a relationship with these people. And the problem is they're non-relational people. 
They don't ask questions. They don't ask for a meal. They don't want to learn from him. They don't want to get to know him. They just come to criticize him, not to befriend him. Jesus is very relational. Throughout the course of his ministry, religious people will continually come against him, and those people are non-relational. About half of my counseling is this. A relational person is with a non-relational person, and shocking, they don't have a great relationship. Okay? So of you, I just explained your marriage, and I'm trying to thin my counseling load, so I'm just going to share this publicly, okay? Um, and so what happens is if you have a relational person and a non-relational person, they can't have a healthy relationship. And the relational person doesn't understand. I talk and they don't talk. And I talk and they don't listen. And I pursue them and they don't pursue me. And I disclose to them and they conceal from me. And, and I'm trying to have an emotional connection and they just disconnect. This is the situation with Jesus and these religious leaders. He is relational. They are non-relational. They come with a heart of a critic and as a result, if you have a non-relational person with a critical disposition, it's very difficult to have a healthy, loving, joyful relationship with them. Now, Jesus doesn't give up because Jesus is awesome, okay? And he still tries to have a relationship with non-relational critical people. And he's trying to prove to them, I'm God. Don't argue with me. Have a relationship with me. And in the Bible, when there is an important decision to be made or a verdict to be rendered, the requirement is that two or three witnesses would be brought forth. Because if one person says something, it is not necessarily accurate or true. So you need to confirm that with additional witnesses. That being the case, Jesus is going to bring forth today five witnesses. He is going to call them forth to testify, to seek to take the truth of who he is and make it known to these people so that they would stop criticizing him, they would start loving him, that they would not be non-relational, that they would become relational in relationship with him. And I, I'll just say, I think this is amazingly humble of Jesus. If I were God, came to the earth and just healed a guy and people showed up to criticize me, I would not give them two, three, four, five additional lines of evidence. I would say, I'm God, I healed a guy. That's all you get. That's all you get from me. I did my job. You go heal somebody and then come to me and then we'll have a discussion. Until then, rock, paper, scissors, healing, I win. You should just listen to me. But Jesus isn't like me, he's not like you, he's not like us, he's awesome. So here are the five witnesses that he brings forth. Number one, first witness is John the baptizer. So think of it like a court scene, here comes the first witness, takes the stand, and here's what Jesus has to say regarding himself. I can do nothing on my own. Jesus is relational. Everything he does, he does in relationship with God the Father. God the Father. Sin is not just disobeying God. Sin is also living independent of God. Sin is not just disobeying God. It's living independent of God. Some of you say, I'm a good person. I live a good life. Well, your sin might be you're living your life independent of God. Jesus here says he lives a dependent life in relationship with God the Father, not an independent life separated from God the Father. Sin is not just action. It's also relation. So Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not only my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He says, I do what the Father tells me to do. I say what the Father tells me to say, and I've come to do what the Father and I agree needed to be done. We're working together relational. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus says, now I know what you're thinking. If I just tell you I'm God, you'll be like, well, I need a little more evidence than that. How many of you, you've learned the hard way that just because someone says something, it's not true. Have you noticed that? It's not always accurate. This is the first rule of counseling. The Bible says in Proverbs, everyone seems right until the other side is heard. How many of you, you've, you've heard somebody's tragic tale, like, I can't believe that happened. You go talk to the other person, like, wait, that's a different version of the story. What Jesus is saying is, he says, you know what? I'll tell you who I am, but... I'll bring some additional witnesses along because I have this understanding that if I just tell you I'm God, that's a big claim. And you're going to want some more witnesses to that. And so I'm humble enough to provide those for you. There is another who bears witness. There it is. Here's the first witness to take the stand about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, that's John the baptizer. John the baptizer, we met him just a few weeks ago in John's gospel. 
And he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I have received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. These are religious people, but they're not saved. They're moral people, but they're not saved. They're spiritual people, but they're not saved. They're devout people, but they're not saved. Some of you are moral. Some of you are spiritual. Some of you are religious. Some of you are devout, and you're not saved. You're not saved by God. You're not saved from God. You're living a spiritual, moral, independent life, relationally disconnected from God. That was these people. And they knew Hebrew. They knew the Old Testament. They met every Saturday, their version of church. They tithed 10%. They sought to do everything that God said. And when God showed up, they rejected him because they didn't have a relationship with him. You can be moral and go to hell. You can be spiritual and go to hell. You can be religious and go to hell. You can be devout and go to hell. You need to be saved. You need to be saved. Saved from hell. Saved from the wrath of God. And Jesus comes to save. The problem with these people, they didn't think they needed to be saved. They thought they were fine. Some of you, that's your problem. I don't need to be saved. I'm fine. God grades on a curve. I'm better than most people and I'll be fine. Your sin is pride. Pride is the worst sin of all. You're at the front of the line. Shazam, bazinga. There we go, okay? He, John the baptizer, was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. So they knew that in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament promised that Jesus was coming and preceding him would be a prophet, a messenger, a preparer of the way. So from that promise to the coming of Jesus was 400 years of silence. No prophet spoke, no book of the Bible was written, and they were all awaiting Jesus' coming. And it was promised John the baptizer would prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Jesus says, John showed up. He showed up, he marched into history, and he's like a lamp lighting a path toward a destination. And he says, you guys like John. He was powerful, filled with the spirit, eccentric personality, rocketed to success. Everybody was mesmerized by him. Yet the whole point of John's ministry was to illuminate a path to Jesus. And Jesus says, now I'm here. So the point of John's ministry is to get you to trust in me, to believe in me, to be saved by me. And this is an extraordinary claim. And at this point, John the baptizer has stepped off of the stage of history, it is likely that he was in jail at this time. His ministry only lasted some six months and he gathered a large group of people and he handed them to Jesus and then he himself was arrested and ultimately beheaded because John was a prophet and he was speaking against the politicians. There's a prophetic function that needs to happen for God's people, especially God's leaders, and that is to speak truth to whatever power structure there might be. John told the political leader, your marriage is wrong, you shouldn't be with that woman. He was preaching against the sin of the politician, and the politician arrested him and beheaded him. Because prophets and politicians, they don't get along. It's like cats and water. Politicians are all about, I'm in control. The prophets are about, God is in control. The politicians are about working a deal. And the prophets are about telling the truth. And so the prophet shows up, rebukes the politician. The politician beheads the prophet. And Jesus says, if you guys appreciated John, you should love me because John prepared you for me. And what he's inherently pointing to is this. John was a truth teller and he had no benefit. He didn't make any money off this. He didn't live a good long life. He didn't get a great retirement. He yelled for six months and got his head chopped off. That's a guy who's just in it for the truth, trying to be accurate with reality. So he brings forth John the baptizer as his first witness to testify about who he is. Jesus' second witness is his works. And he says it this way, John 5, 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than John. That's a big statement. John has promised and prophesied in the Bible. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks with God's authority. And Jesus says, I'm in authority over John. Actually, my testimony is higher than his. That's a massive statement. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, again, relational, working together, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, if you don't like my words, watch my works. If you're struggling with what I say, follow me around and see what I do. Jesus is saying, I do things that only God can do. 
There is no way to explain what Jesus does apart from him being God, king, bringing kingdom in authority, ruling and reigning. What had he just done? Maybe an hour prior, what had he just done? He healed a guy who'd been an invalid for 38 years. That should count for something. That should be some sort of evidence. Jesus does what only God can do. When Jesus is around, deaf people can hear and blind people can see and lame people can run. And on one occasion, a dead guy gets up. In the the King James, it says he stinketh. He'd been there a while. And he gets up, takes a shower and has lunch. Jesus does stuff. They're like, that's different. I never met a guy like that. Never met a guy that does what Jesus does. And that was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised. Isaiah 35 verses five and six, 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, the promise was given. Then when Jesus comes, will the eye of the blind be open? The ears of the deaf unstop. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. The promise was given when Jesus shows up, he is going to do the supernatural, the extraordinary. He'll bring healing and life where there is brokenness and death. And when Jesus shows up, people are changed, things are changed. And Jesus says, look at what is happening. How in the world can you possibly attribute this work to anyone else than God? And here's the point. Jesus here is shifting the burden of truth and the burden of proof. The religious leaders come to him and say, prove it, prove it, prove it. Jesus says, I already have. Why don't you seek to now defend your case? I have presented mine. The burden of proof is on those who would reject Jesus Christ. The burden of proof is on those who would oppose Jesus Christ. The burden of proof is on those who would fight against who Jesus says he is. That's what he's doing. Jesus here is turning the tables. He refuses to be on trial. He instead puts them on trial. He says, here is my case. Now the burden of proof is on you. Disprove what I say regarding me. He is here being very loving, but he's being very clear and very strong. And I want you to see that he's starting to speak from his own authority. He says it this way. I, um, goes on to say here, uh, I, and he talks about me and me. Jesus is appealing to his own authority. You and I, we tend to have derivative authority, not innate authority. Derivative authority is, you know, mom told you to clean your room. That's deriving authority from mom, right? The boss said to go do X, Y, Z. That's deriving authority from employer. Innate authority is I am telling you, this is what you need to do. Jesus does not have derivative authority. He has innate authority. He is claiming for himself all authority. In fact, that's what he's going to say after his resurrection. All authority has been given to me. So his first witness is John the baptizer. The second witness is his own works. How do you explain what it is that I'm doing? The third witness that he provides is the testimony of God the Father, which is the highest authority there is. It's like God the Father says something. People are like, well, who else? It's like, look, there's no one else. We have gotten to the top of the authority chart. God the Father. John 5, 37, 38. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, right? What he's saying is, you've never heard God's voice. How many of you, that's true. You're like, I have I'm, I'm not, I'm not heard God's voice. God the Father spoke audibly and publicly. Do you remember when? We just studied it in John, the baptism of Jesus. The whole Trinity is there. Jesus goes underwater showing that he's going to be buried and rise from death. That's what baptism symbolizes. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. The whole Trinity is present. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the son of God. All who were present heard it. You know what would be amazing right now? Two things. If I stopped talking, that'd be amazing. (laughs) And God started talking. Imagine that. I mean, I I hope we recorded it and live streamed it because that'd be amazing, right? Uh, uh, But imagine if God the Father said, I will finish the sermon now. And you and I just, we all sat here just, okay, God, God showed up and, God preached. Jesus is telling these people, that's what happened. 
This was not a private event. This was a public event. That, this was not just a personal word. This was a very public word. There was a multitude of people present when God the Father spoke from heaven. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. You've never been in his presence. Where do you think I came from? I just came down from his presence. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You do not have his word abiding in you. This is going to set up our next discussion and my next point. But let me, let me ask you this. These people with whom he is debating and discussing and dialoguing, do they know the Old Testament, yes or no? Some of the religious leaders would have learned Hebrew. How many of you, you're like, I'm out. Right, there's a tap out right there. I gotta learn Hebrew, right? They learned Hebrew so that they could study the Old Testament in its original language. They grew up every Sabbath, like you, listening to teaching from the scriptures. They went to schools where they learned to read and write from the scriptures. To become a religious leader, you would have to memorize oftentimes entire books of the Old Testament in the Hebrew. How many of you, you say, that's incredible. Here's what Jesus says. His word is, the word of God is not in you. It's not part of you. It's not changing you. It's not affecting you. It's information, not transformation. It's, it's things that you consider, but not a person you're becoming. This is going to transition this conversation to what it means to truly be a person who is rooted in the word of God and understands the God of the word. First witness, John the baptizer. Second witness, works of Jesus. Third witness, God the Father. Jesus only needed to provide two or three witnesses. He's so gracious and good, he's going to add a few more. The next one I want to spend the preponderance of our time on. The scriptures. This is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. This is a section that I am so honored and excited to share with you today. Um, I'll just read it and then we'll dig into it. We're going to spend a lot of our time here. John 5, 39 through 44. You search the scriptures. Is that a good thing? Yeah, Yeah, it's good, right? He's not like, ah, you read the Bible. That's your problem. That's not what he's saying. He's not rebuking them for reading the Bible. He's talking here about the 39 books of the Old Testament. The 27 books of the New Testament have not yet been written. He says, you diligently study the scriptures, not a problem, but here is the problem, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me tell you this, this book does not save you. This book reveals Jesus and Jesus saves you. So we love this book because it tells us about Jesus, our savior, but you can read this book and go to hell. You can memorize this book and go to hell. You can be on your deathbed, grab this book and go to hell. This is not a superstitious book. This is not a lucky rabbit's foot. This is a book through which God speaks to teach us about Jesus so that we would have a relationship with him and be saved by him. The goal of this book is to get you to Jesus, but this book alone cannot save you. Only Jesus can save. And what he tells them is, you study the scriptures thinking that this book is going to save you. How many of you are superstitious? How many of you just think, well, you know, if I do a few things or, you know, grab a few religious things, then, then God will be okay with me and I'll be okay with him. They have almost a superstitious view of God's word, not a relational view of God's word. And it is they that bear witness about me. So what's the Bible about? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We're gonna dig into this. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, you read the Bible, the Bible, the whole point of the Bible is to get you to have a relationship with me. I show up and you use the Bible to argue with me. Some of you would laugh at these people. You'd mock these people. You'd say, I can't believe that they argue with Jesus. We do it all the time, right? How many of you read the Bible? You're like, not doing that, right? That's crazy. Now I'm out. I can't forgive them. I can't believe that. I'm not gonna obey. I will not trust. We argue with the word of God and the God of the word all the time, just like they do. 
And sometimes we think that because we're in the word, the word is in us. That's not always the case. They're in the word, but the word is not in them. He says, I do not receive glory from people. He is starting to point out some of their folly here. What he's saying is, you guys live to glorify one another. You're so smart. No, you're so smart. No, you're smarter than I am. No, you're smarter than, you're so godly. No, you're so godly. You're way more godly than I am. You're right. And it's so humble of you to point that out. I know, uh, but you're more humble than I am. No, you're way more humble than I am. Maybe we're both equally humble. Living for the glory and the praise of one another. Have you ever met people that are flatterers? They just flatter one another. I say something awesome about you, then you say something awesome about me. And then I say something wonderful about you. And then you say something wonderful about me. And what we do, we glorify one another. That's living for the praise of others. That's that's having your identity established, not by what God says about you, but what others say about you. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man is a trap or a snare. People pleasers, conflict haters, tough decision maker avoiders. Oh, we got a giggle. We've met, some of you are here. Welcome. So good to have you. Is he done yet? No, he's just starting. Okay. You want everyone to like you and you forget that if everyone likes you, maybe God doesn't. You want everyone to approve of you and if you have everyone approve of you, maybe God doesn't approve of you. That ultimately, if you're living for the approval of others, you are not living to the glory of God. And Jesus looks at these people like, you love quoting each other and praising one another and glad handing. And, and Jesus is saying, you know what? It's, it's about what the father thinks. It's not about what everyone else thinks. Fear of God will deliver you from fear of man. Fear of God will deliver you from fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man is a trap or a snare. Uh, Proverbs, I think it's 1, 7. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord delivers you from the fear of man. Some of you, your whole life has been ruined and wrecked because you're seeking to make everyone happy and that makes God and you unhappy. And Jesus says, here's the problem. You're arguing with me so that you can all pat each other on the back and you don't realize that God the Father is very displeased, though everyone else is very approving. He says, uh, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's a big statement. People always say, you don't know my heart. Jesus is like, I do. You can't judge me. Jesus is like, I will. They don't have the love of God in their heart. You know what they have? They have the word of God in their mind, but they do not have the love of God in their heart. Do you love God? I believe in him. Do you love him? Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love God? You can see here, love is relational. They have the word of God in their mind. They do not have the love of God in their hearts. So when God shows up, they don't even want a relationship with him. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. You say, well, we love God. We just don't love you. Jesus said, I am sent by him. If you reject me, you reject him. If another comes in his own name, somebody else shows up, they're a religious leader, preacher, teacher, best-selling author. You buy their t-shirt, you click like on your Twitter account, you show up early for the concert and you're fine with them. So you don't mind celebrating. You just don't have any enthusiasm for me. There are people that have excitement for Christian things and very little excitement for Christ. There are people that love Christian music and don't love Christ. There are people that love Christian events and don't love Christ. There are people that love Christian messages and don't love Christ. And Jesus is saying, you guys love all the religious stuff. God shows up and you're not interested. How can you believe when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? I'm 
Well, first of all, I don't have notes, but I'm way off them. So I'll just share some stuff that comes to mind. Older people, how many of you are 40 and older? In the Bible, we're the older people. Good to have you. Welcome. Please stay. We need you. Okay, so older people, here's what we care about. You care about capital, right? You want your money to not go away before your life, right? You, you want your money to continue so that you can pay your bills and live your life. You care about your capital. How many of you are younger? You're under 40. Okay, you're under 40. Do you know what people under 40 care about? Their social capital. Their social capital. You know what that means? Social media, likes, approval, trending, appearances. Don't criticize me. Don't block me. Don't unfriend me. And don't do it publicly. Oh my gosh. What will people think? Who cares? Flush it. Flush it. It stinks anyways. Flush it, okay? Shouldn't have said that. It's true, helpful, insightful, and shouldn't have been said. Um, and it's not an apology, just an acknowledgement. It'll happen again in a minute. Okay, so, but what he's saying is you, you, you're living for the glory of one another. All the likes and approval and, and what will people think and how will I be perceived and, and it's social capital. There's one relationship that has to be the most important relationship and that's your relationship with the Lord. And other relationships are not unimportant, but they're secondary in importance. And if any of those relationships harm your relationship with the Lord, then you need to be loyal to that first relationship, to that first relationship. So that being said, Jesus is telling us that he is far more concerned about giving account to the Father than he is giving account to the critics. So what we're going to do now, we're going to spend a lot of time, hope you pack the snack, we spent a lot of time, and we're going to talk about how the whole Bible is about Jesus. They come to Jesus, and they think he's not biblical. There are two ways, basically, to be biblical. To be biblical like Jesus or his critics. Why do I tell you this? We're a Bible-believing church, amen? Right? All right, we are. The motto, the message, the mission of the Trinity Church is we open our Bibles to learn, we open our lives to love. Biblical, relational. Right? Those are the two pedals on our bike. Biblical, relational. So that lives and legacies are transformed. For those of us who take the Bible very seriously, the problem can be we also start to take ourselves very seriously. The key is to take the Bible seriously, but not yourself. These people take themselves very seriously. And they think that they're being biblical, but they're not relational. My concern, this is not, um, this is not a, a criticism. This is not um, where we find ourselves as a people. But just knowing that these religious critics did not start with the goal of opposing God. They started with the goal of being biblical. But they were biblical, not relational. So when God shows up, they oppose God. I want us to be careful. That we seek to be biblical like Jesus, not as critics. That we're relational, not non-relational. That our goal is to build people up, not be people up with the word of God. Okay? So let me give you some perspectives. Um, number one, if you know the scriptures, but you don't have the spirit, you can end up like Satan. Okay? Does Satan know the Bible? Yes. Does he have the love of God in his heart? No. Is he saved? No. Does he have the Holy Spirit? No. So he knows the Bible and he shows up even against Jesus and he argues in debates by misquoting and twisting the scriptures. He brings death where there should be life. He brings lies where there should be truth. He brings darkness where there should be light. These people study the scripture, but they don't have the spirit. And so they study the Bible like Satan does. Seeking to win arguments and not people. Seeking to be in control and not surrender to God. This is why if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you study the Bible, you're not necessarily improving your condition. You actually could be joining God's enemy. Number two, the Bible is for you, but it's not primarily about you. 
It is for you, but it is not primarily about you. That's what Jesus is saying. They opened the Bible and they thought, it's about me. Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's not about you. It's about me. That's what he says. They bear witness about me. Say, well, what's the point of the whole Bible? Actually, who's the point of the whole Bible? Jesus. The whole Bible beginning to end is all about Jesus. You're not understanding the Bible correctly until you end up in a loving relationship with Jesus. So the Bible is for you, but it's about Jesus. Do you get that? It's for you for sure, but it's about Jesus. Give you another one. Uh, Knowledge puffs you up, love builds you up and helps you build others up. These people had knowledge, but no love. Jesus just told them, the love of God is not in your heart. Paul tells the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. I'm so proud. I'm so smart. I can win every argument. No one can correct me. I'm the critic. Love, Paul says, builds up. Builds you up and helps you to build other people up. Knowledge is what causes you to be puffed up and beat up others. Love is what builds you up so you can build up others. These people had knowledge, but it was accompanied with pride, not love, rooted in humility. Another one. Scripture is not a window to look at. It's a window to look through to see Jesus. Right? So Jesus is saying, okay, the word of God, the scriptures, he's talking here primarily about the Old Testament. He said, you are looking at the window. You need to look through the window. Jesus says the whole point of the Bible, it's a window through which you look to see who? To see me. Jesus said, you're looking at, not looking through. You're looking at, not looking through. It's like Jesus is outside. Hi, I'm here. You've been waiting 400 years. I'm here. And they're like, I don't know. I just love the window. I just love the window. I look at the window. I memorize the window. We fight over the window. I think they're looking out the wrong window. I just want to argue about the window. Jesus is like, look through the window. I'm here. Open up the door. Let me come in. Let's have a relationship. Nope. We just like windows. Ah. Ah. Give you another one. How many of you as a kid, you rode a bike? Right? Jesus is not a spoke. Jesus is the hub. That's what he's saying. See, well, the Bible's about marriage and family and money and forgiveness and angels and demons and Jesus. No, it's about Jesus and having a Jesus-centered marriage and a Jesus-centered family and how Jesus conquers Satan and demons and about Jesus should be the first priority in your finances. Jesus is not a spoke. He's the hub to which all the spokes in the Bible are connected and find their meaning. I didn't know this. I grew up kind of religious. Um, I, I grew up going to church sometime and I didn't really know the Bible. But basically my view of it is uh, God likes good people, hates bad people, so I'm fine. I was very arrogant. I know that's shocking. I'm just sharing it. Um, don't know why you're laughing. Just an observation. Um, and, uh, so when I was in high school, I had a letterman's jacket. Do, do we have those anymore? I mean, do people even wear those anymore? Do they? Probably not in Arizona. It's too hot. Uh, Letterman's tank top. I don't know. We had a Letterman's jacket. (laughs) And it was a long time ago. And so we would get on our dinosaur and ride to school wearing our Letterman's jacket. And so on the back of my Letterman's jacket, I've shared this before, we'd put our name or our nickname. You know what the back of my Letterman's jacket said? Mr. Driscoll. Because I felt that everyone else was a child and I was a fully matured, responsible adult and I was just with a bunch of my minions in high school. That's kind of how I felt. So I felt I was part of the faculty. Well, there's the, the school principal and Mr. Driscoll. You know, there's, there's, our, there's, our, there's our leadership. So I thought I was better than everyone else. I totally, and I had little to no compassion, especially for men, no empathy, because I didn't do drugs. That's bad. I didn't drink alcohol, that's bad. I didn't hit anyone that didn't deserve it, that's bad. (laughs) I had some guys that did deserve it. Um, And then I started reading the Bible. 
that Grace gave me when I was in college as a teenager. And I'll be honest with you, at first, I kind of like the religious leaders. They're strong, they're powerful, they're courageous, they're public, they're fearless. And I'm reading, I'm like, wow, those guys are tough. And then they murder Jesus. Row, row. Like, uh, like, oh, I was with, that was, I like those guys. And then they murdered God. Probably not the right team to be on. Amen. I realize I'm, I'm a religious guy. I'm a self-righteous critic. I, I'm a holier than thou. What I can tell you about us holier than thou is we tend to think that your sin is way worse than our sin. And so we're gonna criticize you, but you're not allowed to criticize us. And then I started reading the Bible and I realized I'm way worse than I thought. And I need Jesus way more than I thought. And I'm a lot less like Jesus than I would have even imagined. And I, I got in a great church where the pastor taught the Bible And he started to show me that the whole Bible is about Jesus and that changed my life. And it's still changing my life because I'm a work in progress. This is the sanctified me almost 30 years later. Imagine where we started. (laughs) Okay. So what I want to share with you is some things that my first pastor shared with me. I want you to love the scriptures. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. I want you to be continually amazed by Jesus and transformed by Jesus and conformed to the image of Jesus. So I want you to read your Bible. I want you to know your Bible, but I want you at the end of it to see Jesus and to love Jesus. So I'm gonna share with you some ways that the whole Bible, but especially the Old Testament, since this is the point of the whole debate in this section is about Jesus. Some people firstly will say, well, Jesus is in the Old, excuse me, in the New Testament. He's not in the Old Testament. How many of you heard that? Well, the God of the Old Testament, he's different than the God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament is like his junior high years. He's really emotional, very angry. By the time Jesus shows up, he's all grown up way better. So we like the New Testament, not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. Jesus shows up in the New Testament, but he shows up many times in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, there's a guy named Abraham. Somebody shows up, goes for a walk with him. That's Jesus, comes down, makes a little cameo appearance. There's a guy named Jacob in Genesis 32. Somebody comes down and wrestles with him all night. That's Jesus, comes down and wrestles with Jacob. You may have heard the story in Exodus 3. There's a bush that is burning. A guy named Moses shows up and the bush says, go into Egypt and liberate millions of people and tell the mighty king, let my people go. Moses has got a great question. Uh, Who should I say is send me? If I say the bush, I don't feel like we'll have the outcome that we're both hoping for. (laughs) The foliage is very frustrated. It's not, it's not a great, not a great, not a great ask. So he says, tell him that I am has sent you. It is God speaking through the bush. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I'm the God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush and liberated the people from slavery in Egypt. How many of you have heard the story of Daniel? Sorry, veggie tail folk, right? Rackshack and Benny, remember that? So the story of, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter three, Rackshack and Benny, they get thrown into a fiery furnace and they're supposed to die. And they don't die because a fourth guy shows up in the furnace. And everybody's looking at it like, well, where'd the fourth guy come from? And why is he in the furnace? Of all places he could be, he jumped in the pizza oven. What is he doing in there? Who's that? Just say Jesus. The answer is always Jesus or burrito. Welcome to the Trinity Church. Those are the two solutions to almost all your problems, okay? So who's there in the furnace with him? Jesus is. Jesus shows up. How about this one? There is an occasion, it's mind bending. It's in Isaiah chapter six. There's a guy, Isaiah says, I saw the heavens open. I saw the Lord seated in glory. The train of his robe filled the temple. Angels surrounded him crying out day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. You're gonna see it a little bit later in John chapter 12. I think it's verse 41. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. Jesus shows up repeatedly in the Old Testament. A couple other ways to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the roles of Old Testament leaders. So as you're reading your Bible, please get a Bible, please read it. 
You're going to see priests. Priests are mediators between a holy God and an unholy people. That is all pointing to Jesus who comes as our great high priest. God becomes a man to mediate relationship between men and God. You're going to see prophets who come forth and they proclaim the word of God boldly. And Jesus comes to fulfill that ministry. He is the prophet of God and he is the word of God. You're going to see kings ruling over kingdoms as you read the Bible. That's to remind you that one day all kings and kingdoms come to an end because the king of kings comes with a kingdom of God. And his name is Jesus. You're going to see as well as you read the Bible, shepherds who care for their sheep. And it is a reminder that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for we who are his sheep. You're going to see judges who are seated in authority and rendering verdicts between guilt and innocence. All of that is to remind us of what Jesus told us last week in just the verses preceding that the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son because Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. In addition, you will see as you read the Old Testament sacrifices that an animal is brought in and though it is without guilt, it is a substitute and its life is taken so that a sinner can be forgiven. All of that is pointing to Jesus, whom John the baptizer, earlier in John's gospel, looked at and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the sacrifice and he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. As you read the Old Testament, you'll meet those who are at the temple as this occasion is at the temple. The temple was the holiest place on earth where God's presence dwelt. And Jesus shows up and his body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he is God's presence on the earth, the most sacred place on the earth. So now you and I, my dear friends, we do not go to a place called the temple. We go to a person named Jesus. And that is the holy presence of God. In addition, as you read, you will meet rabbis and teachers that appear throughout the Bible. All of those are pointing us to the coming of Jesus, whom they call a rabbi, which means teacher. You will see a story where God is in heaven and a man named Jacob is on the earth in the book of Genesis. And that infinite gap is is made possible for relationship through a ladder or stairs. And that the angels of God ascend and descend. We've already learned this in John's gospel. All of that was foreshadowing the forthcoming of Jesus who comes down to be with us and brings us up to be with him. And you're going to meet a guy as you read the Bible named Adam. He's our first father. And Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he is called the last Adam. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul delineates and he compares between Jesus and Adam. Adam is our first father and head of the race. Jesus is our last father and head of the race. And you'll see some parallelism between the two that the first Adam sinned in a garden. The last Adam bled for sin in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. The first Adam sinned at a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The last Adam atoned for sin on a tree, literally a Roman cross. The first Adam was naked, created unashamed and then became shamed. The last Adam was stripped nearly naked and went to the cross, bearing, scorning our shame. The first Adam brought thorns. The last Adam wore a crown of thorns. The first Adam brought condemnation and the last Adam brings salvation. My point is this, is as you read the Bible, look for Jesus, look for Jesus, look for Jesus. It's for you, but it's about him. It's not just about what you should do. It's about what he must do for you. It's not just first telling you who you are. It's telling you who he is and you find who you are in relationship to who he is. The religious leaders come to him and they argue and they debate. And Jesus says, no, the Bible's about me. The whole thing's about me. You've memorized the whole thing, but you've missed the whole point. Some other ways that you'll see Jesus. Jesus is greater than Old Testament saints. There's a guy early on, his name is Abel. He is godly, righteous, and devout, and he is murdered by his brother. Jesus is the greater Abel who is murdered by his proverbial brothers. 
You meet a guy in the Old Testament named Abraham. He left his father's home. He moved a far way away in faith so that salvation could come to the nations. Jesus is the promise and descendant of Abraham. He, like Abraham, left his father's home, went on a great long journey to planet earth so that the nations could be saved and blessed through him. You're going to meet as you read the Old Testament, a guy named Isaac. He was instructed to carry wood on his own back to a place where he would lay down his life as a sacrifice to his father. Jesus comes along as the greater Isaac. He literally carries the wood of crucifixion on his back. He lays his life down as a sacrifice to his father in the same region that Isaac ventured. Because Jesus is the greater Isaac. You'll meet a guy named Jacob. He wrestles with God all night. Jesus comes as the greater Jacob and in the garden of Gethsemane as death and foreboding awaits him. He wrestles sweating like drops of blood all night until he too surrenders to the will of God. You'll meet a guy named Moses who is a prophet and a liberator and a deliverer of God's people. And he takes them out of death and bondage and destruction. Jesus comes as the greater Moses. He brings the greater Exodus. He achieves the greater deliverance. He conquers the greater Pharaoh. He defeats Satan's sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. And the people of God follow his presence into the kingdom. Furthermore, you'll meet a guy named Job. And he was innocent and he was godly. The Bible says that in fact, he was a righteous man. And when he was attacked and he was opposed, it was demonic torment to reveal his love for God and God's love for him. And he was failed by his proverbial friends. Jesus comes as the greater Job. He is innocent, he is righteous, he is under demonic attack and he reveals his great love, devotion and affection through his suffering even though his friends too fail him. You'll meet another guy as you read the Bible named David. He starts out as a lowly, humble shepherd who becomes a great king. Jesus comes from his family line and Jesus is our good shepherd who lays down his life for we who are his sheep. And he sets up a kingdom, the kingdom of David, the kingdom that will never end as the king of kings. Because Jesus is the greater David. You'll meet a guy named Jonah. He finds himself in a place of death in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights until he emerges forth very much alive to proclaim a message of salvation to which revival breaks out and multitudes are saved. Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the son of, the, a son of man will be in the heart of the earth. And Jesus went into that place of death and came forth with that message of salvation because Jesus is the greater Jonah. You're going to meet a guy named Boaz and he, he meets a woman that he has no legal obligation to, but he has affection toward. Her name is Ruth. He pursues her, he loves her, he pays a great price so that he might enter into loving relationship with her. Jesus comes as the greater Boaz, the church is the greater Ruth, that Jesus pays the price through his own death to purchase for himself the church as his beloved bride. As you read the Bible, you're going to meet a man named Nehemiah. He goes to rebuild a city called Jerusalem, that it could be a home where God's people could gather to worship him together safely. Jesus comes as the greater Nehemiah. He says that he has gone before you to prepare a place for you. He calls it his father's house and the Bible calls it the new Jerusalem because Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. Nehemiah built Jerusalem, Jesus builds the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that God's people dwelt in was to prepare them for the new Jerusalem where we will be together in God's presence forever because Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. And as you read, you're gonna meet a guy named Hosea. He's got a wife named Gomer. He loves her and she is unfaithful to him. And she abandons him, she betrays him, and he pursues her, and he purchases her back because he wants to be in loving covenant with her. Jesus is the greater Hosea. We are the greater Gomer. That even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Even when we run from him, he runs for us. And even when we sell ourselves, he purchases us back because he is good and wants his goodness to change us because Jesus, my good friend, he's the greater Hosea. The whole Bible is about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. It all comes together when you know Jesus. It all comes together when you see Jesus. It all makes sense when you love Jesus. The problem that these people have is they're quote unquote biblical, but they're not relational. They know a lot of Bible, but they don't love Jesus. So they don't know the Bible at all.
Now, when I was in college, brand new Christian, my first pastor showed me in the Old Testament something called prophecies. Some of you know this because you're mature believers. Some of you don't know this because you're unbelievers. Some of you are brand new believers and you don't even know where we're going. We love you. Welcome. Good to have you. It's been really wonderful to see here at the Trinity Church recently some people become brand new Christians. I've recently had the honor of doing this, getting a brand new Bible and handing it to a brand new Christian. I was meeting with somebody recently. They said, uh, Pastor Mark, I think I'm a Christian now. I was like, well, what happened? They're like, I really love Jesus and I really want to learn the Bible. Well, welcome to Team Jesus. They said, uh, I've been reading the Bible on the iPad. Does that count? Does it? No. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay, it does. You're like, oh, no, it does. They said, but I'd really like to have a real Bible. Like a... One of the, like a real Bible, like a cow gave its life and a tree gave its life. And this is a real Bible. I said, well, can I give you a Bible? Do you know what a wonderful honor it is to give somebody their first Bible? Grace gave me a Bible when I was 17, changed my life. Thank you. I said, man, I'd love to give you a first Bible. I handed them the first Bible. They held it like a newborn baby. This person started crying. They got teared up. They're like, I have a Bible. You do. Sometimes we get so familiar with amazing things that we forget how amazing they are. God loves you. He wants to talk to you. He wants a relationship with you. He's written a whole book so you can get to know his son, Jesus. I was a brand new Christian. My my pastor said, okay, bring your Bible. I'm going to walk you through parts of the Bible so you can get to learn about Jesus. And he showed me something called prophecy. 25% of the Bible was prophetic in nature when it was written. I'll share it with you briefly. I'm way over time. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah 7:14. the Lord himself will give you a sign. The, the virgin's going to have a kid. Well, that really narrows down who we're looking for. Amen. That narrows it down. Well, who could it be? Well, where's the virgin with a baby? Let's start there. That'll narrow it down. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. A boy is coming. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God says, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The virgin will have a boy. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. Well, where will he be born? Micah 5, 2, 700 years before Jesus is born. But you, Bethlehem, a small town, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, from eternity. I heard people say, well, Jesus coordinated, organized, orchestrated his whole life to to follow along biblical prophecy because he's a fraud. Let me tell you this. You don't pick where you're born, amen? You just don't. You don't. You're not like in your mother's womb. Mom, we got to get to Bethlehem. I don't know if you've read Micah. we got to get to Bethlehem right away. Micah says, i got to be born in Bethlehem. Mom, get to Bethlehem. It didn't go down like that. Jesus wasn't reading Micah in his mother's womb and telling her to get to Bethlehem. That's just the way it worked out because Jesus is who he says he is, and he fulfills all of the prophecies of Scripture. Next one. Malachi 3.1, when will he come? See, I'll send my messenger, that's John the baptizer, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus, will come to his temple. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. My Jewish friends that I love, they're like, we can't wait till Messiah comes. You missed him, love you, missed him. Says he's coming to the temple. I've been to the temple. It's nothing but ruins. It's gone because we don't need the temple. We got Jesus. A virgin will have a baby who is God with us, born in Bethlehem before 70 AD. Well, what will happen? How will we know it's him? Isaiah 53, 9, 700 years before Jesus was born. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He died between two thieves. And with the rich in his death, after Jesus died, he didn't own a tomb, a burial plot. So a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea gifted it to him post-mortem. And Jesus was laid in the tomb of a rich man. And the good news for Joseph was, it was more like a weekend at a hotel. He got it back. It wasn't a big deal. Jesus got up. That was funny. He'll get on the way home. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He's going to get buried. He's going to die. He's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. Well, is he going to stay there? No, he's not. Psalm 16:10. 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. You will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. These religious guys are arguing with Jesus like, we could do this all day, by the way. This is just a, a small smattering and sampling. God is coming, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us before 70 AD, born in Bethlehem, will be crucified, dead, buried in a rich man's tomb, and then he's going to get up and conquer death through his resurrection. Jesus says, howdy. 
This is who he is. Again, burden of proof, my dear friend. I love you. But if you say, I don't believe the Bible, burden of proof. What other answer, what other acknowledgement can you possibly have to explain all of this? Last one. Final witness. Moses, number five. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the law. They're written by a man named Moses. In them are 613 laws. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. Imagine your mom on the fridge. She had your to-do list. It was 613 things on the fridge. Like, ah, mom, what happens if I don't do these? You're going to hell. Ah, mom, that's a lot. Okay, that's how they saw it. 613 laws, you kidding me? That's why we love Jesus so much. What else is there, Jesus? I'll take Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. Cuts to the front of the line. Because he fulfills the law, not us. He's perfect, not you. So these people thought, well, this is great. We're going to die. We're going to stand before God. Moses is going to be there. Moses is going to pull out the 613 things on the list. And then Moses will go through the list and say, "Mm, good, mm, good, mm, good, mm, good. These people are amazing. They obeyed all the laws. They did everything right. Let them into heaven. They've earned it. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. He's not your defense attorney. He's your prosecuting attorney. He's not going to say, oh, they nailed it. He's going to say, no, they nailed him. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. If you do not believe his writings, how do you believe in my words? Good people don't go to heaven. People that are with Jesus go to heaven. Because nobody's good. Only Jesus is good. Jesus is saying, don't think you're going to stand before God. And he's going to read your resume. And you're going to get a standing ovation. Let me tell you this. You are worse than you think you are. Some of you say, you are too, Pastor Mark. Okay, I'm worse than I think I am too. None of us will stand before God and say, here's my life, you're welcome, where's my parade? You stand before God and the word of God will show all of your sin. And if you don't belong to Jesus, you will suffer forever. And if you belong to Jesus, His perfection is your perfection. His death is your forgiveness. A relationship with him never ends. Never ends. Never ends. I'll close with this, Um, maybe. Um, Here are five witnesses that Jesus brings forth to testify about who he is and what he does. For those of you, those of us who are Christians, Our life is supposed to be a testimony, a witness as well. If you drove here with somebody, I want you to talk about this on the way home. Um, If you're in a life group, I want you to discuss this as you get together this week. We get together as a family on Sunday night. We do a little recap. What was your takeaway? What is God showing you? This will be what we discuss at the Driscoll House tonight. What witness would you give for who Jesus is and what Jesus does? What witness would you give? I was thinking about it. This is a, a pretty special week for me. This week, Gracie and I had the 30th anniversary of our first date. Um, we had a great time. I'm happy to report we didn't fight. So, um, so that's good. And I started thinking about it. Who would I be? What would we be without Jesus? That's a scary thought for me. Um, Grace gave me permission to share this with you. We've been faithfully married for 25 years. We love each other. The most recent years have been the best years, to be honest with you. Um, We dated for almost five years before we were married. And in there, I I started as a non-Christian, and then Jesus saved me. And I started reading the Bible, and Jesus started working on me and changing me. Um, Grace and I are not married today without Jesus. We're not. Because the sin leads to death, and either Jesus dies for sin or the sin kills the relationship. Grace and I are still together because of Jesus. I know that apart from Jesus, I would be just like these religious leaders. I don't look at them and say, How could you be like that? I say, How, uh, 
how come I'm not like that or, or not as bad as I was? I'm a work in progress. I would have been uh, critical, domineering, overbearing toward my wife and children. That's who I'd be. Um, I would parent my kids the same way that these critics approach Jesus. Beat them up, don't build them up. My kids wouldn't be sitting in the front row and they don't have to, they just do. I, I wouldn't go home and enjoy dinner tonight with an intact family and a loving wife. I would have wrecked everything. And Jesus saved. Jesus saved from Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God, and Jesus saved me from me. Jesus can save you from you. Jesus lifted a tremendous burden from me, forgiving me for sins I've committed and don't need to pay God back for because he paid the full price. Jesus has allowed me to learn the power of forgiveness so that I can forgive others and get unburdened and not be angry and hurt and defensive and broken. Without Jesus, everything in my life is different and nothing in my life is better. And that relationship with Jesus continues to change me and it changes how I do relationship with everyone else. I'm your pastor. I love you. You need Jesus. And the only way you can really get to know Jesus is spending time in the word of God. But just because you spend time in the word of God does not necessarily guarantee that you're spending time with Jesus. So I want you to open up the word of God and I want you to spend time building your relationship with Jesus. I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. Remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood that makes this relationship possible. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for these dear people who give me the tremendous honor of teaching them the scriptures every week. Lord, I, I love what I get to do. I love teaching the Bible. I love learning. Lord, I thank you for kind people who, who allow me to try and help them learn your word. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are not Christians, that they would today have a change of heart and mind, that they would love you and be saved. Lord, for those of us who grew up in religious households and we see the Bible as something to beat us up and not build us up, please refresh our understanding of the scriptures. Lord God, I feel inclined to pray for those who have been in ministry or leadership and they come here with some church hurt. They've been beat up and not built up. They've dealt with people who are more like Jesus' critics and less like Jesus. Pray, Lord God, for a healing for them, a forgiveness, um, that, Lord God, you would do a good work in them to restore them and to refresh them. Lord God, pray for those of us who really do love the Bible, that you would remind us that when we see the religious leaders, that's where we can drift unless we stay close to Jesus. Pray for the Trinity Church, Lord God, that this would be a place where we do open our Bibles to learn and we do open our lives to love. And Lord God, as we come to worship, we invite your presence. Holy Spirit, we invite you to help us apply the scriptures and to love Jesus and to appreciate what he's done. Lord Jesus, as we come forward for communion, each person in line is a witness. They add to this list of five witnesses. They add their life as a witness to who you are and what you do. And Lord Jesus, pray for us, pray for these people, that they'd be encouraged, that they'd be refreshed, that time with you and time in the word would sound not like something that they have to do, but something that they get to do because you love them and you want a relationship with them. And as they open the word, Jesus, I pray that they would meet you in whose name we pray. Amen.